You are listening to Rouge, White and Blue, a proud member of the Canadian Football Podcast Network. Welcome to the Rouge, White and Blue podcast. Still not Oz Davis, but I hear he is coming back soon, so you don't have to put up with Joe Pritchard as your main host going forward, hopefully. But joining me this week at, to help co-host the show is Josh Smith from 3 Down Nation and Podsky Wee Wee. And Josh, uh, nice to have you back. It's been a few weeks. It has been a few weeks. I, I don't want to pull the curtain back too much, but we tried to get this done last week, but I've been unplugged a little bit for the last few weeks. I've been spending some time in the lovely province of Prince Edward Island, where my brother and nephew live. So I unfortunately couldn't make it with you last week. I'm sure you put out a great show anyway, but now that I'm, I'm back in civilization with real usable internet, let's talk some CFL football. I mean, it wasn't, a, it wasn't a controversial week or a big week in the CFL last week. Was it like no, nothing of note really happened. Nothing important. Nothing important. <laughs> no, uh, this is going to be a 10 minute show. and We'll be out of here. Right. Well, I, I, I actually, PEI is at one of those places. I'm scratching my head as to how I'm ever going to get to because they don't have a CFL team. So I'll have to figure that out someday, but uh, getting back to the topic of the CFL before we get too far off, uh, off here well, let me start. put a pin in the accent I, I, I can give you i can give you your way of getting there okay if the bombers ever play touchdown atlantic whether it's in moncton or halifax halifax is about a four and a half hour drive from prince edward island from charlottetown the capital moncton's about a two and a half hour drive so if the bombers ever play td atlantic you want to go out east there's your there's your end to go to pei and uh, if you ever can... do go i i will give you the places to go in charlottetown like i did a dozen years ago when I went and saw the cats and stampeders there. So there you go. There's your CFL content and PEI content all wrapped into one. There we go. And I'll just have to make that trip a week long so we could hit all the high points. For sure. So going forward with actual CFL content instead of Joe's travelogue, uh, BC going into Montreal and coming away with a 34-25 win. It was Montreal's chance to show that they belonged in the top caliber, in the top tier of the league and they didn't quite manage that no i was a little surprised too i thought this would given bc's struggles the week before against hamilton who will obviously talk about the that labor day game in a bit we we kind of know the tie cats are not a good football team they're very erratic but we, we saw bc kind of struggle at home thinking oh montreal how many great teams have struggled playing in Montreal over the years? Bo Levi Mitchell with those Stampeders teams that ran roughshod over everyone. I think they won like once or twice in Montreal the entire time there he was there. So they were they were winning 14, 15 games a year, but one of their losses was always in Montreal. So this felt like the cross-country track. It was earlier in the week. I think it was uh, – was it a Friday night game? Yeah, it was a Friday night game, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, Saturday. Was, no, no, it was Saturday. Was, no, it yeah, was. You're right. Because it was it's, all, it's all weird. It was all weird this past week because of the holiday. Yeah, you're right. So it was a Saturday game. So it's like that, but that cross country track gets even the best of teams. So the CBC come out, play as well as they did. Montreal, I mean, they made it a game. Uh, the out, you, you saw some good stuff out of William Stanback. He looked like he had kept, recaptured the fountain of youth there. But yeah, to kind of wrap it up succinctly, you saw that the Alouettes are maybe they're in that second group of teams. Like maybe you want to put based on what they did 
on Sunday, Saskatchewan in that as well, but they're very clearly not on the level of the elite teams. And maybe even BC is not quite up to the Winnipeg Toronto tier anymore, but there's close, they're much closer to there than Montreal is. And I think that's kind of what we saw. We've seen the Alouette struggle over the last few weeks. I think they've lost what three of the last four, if I'm not mistaken. So it's not been, or maybe they've lost three in a row. I, the Alouette season has been really like hills and valleys. Like you remember that year where Edmonton started, I think they started like seven and oh, and then they were like seven and seven. It's been really like geeks and valleys with the Owls this year as well. So I think that seeing, we saw that they could be competitive in that environment, but maybe that they're they're not necessarily in that upper echelon or that type of maybe the, these types of teams are the ones that are going to be able to kind of nip them in the bud come playoff time as well. Yeah, and given where we all thought they were in February, this is still a mm-hmm. few steps ahead of that. But you know, if you have a chance to make the next step, you you always want to take it, but. Maybe this year is a stepping stone forward, but not a giant leap. And we see what they do next year because um, they have struggled. Again, they, you pretty much draw a line. If they, if you're above a certain record, Mo, Mo, you're beating Montreal. If you're below a certain record, Montreal's beating you. You can almost just draw that line straight. Yeah, don't they feel like they're going to finish as like a 9-9 nine and nine team? Where I've had 9-9 nine and wins- nine in my head since June. Yeah, like I thought they would be like I didn't believe in the, like I, I think I'm a much bigger pr- believer in Jason Moss as a head coach. I know the antics in in Edmonton turned a lot of people off. The, the offenses in Saskatchewan the last couple of years weren't great, but I still think if you look at what he did, considering where the Elks are now, what he did when he was in Edmonton in four years, just three trips to the East or West final, like that's nothing to kind of scoff at, but wasn't good enough for Edmonton, so they got rid of him. And I think he wasn't great when he was in Saskatchewan. So I think people kind of, and of course the sideline antics, you know, ripping the, throwing the Gatorade jugs and all that stuff. Like I think people forget that he's actually a pretty darn good coach, but I was skeptical that that would work with Fajardo. Like Cody Fajardo goes there, but it's like, I thought that was a weird pairing because it didn't work in Saskatchewan. So I was, I was, I thought Montreal might be the worst team in the league this year. I'm obviously wrong about that. I think I had him pegged for like five wins. They're already at six. So, but you're right. I think that we're seeing maybe they're building something. They have a great player in Austin Mack. I don't know if William Stanback is still the upper echelon running back. I think he shows glimpses of it, but I'm not sure if he can be that on a full-time basis anymore. So maybe, you know, they got Jeshurun Antwi who can play. I, I'm a really big fan of Walter Fletcher. I think if he's given a more prominent role, I think he can do a lot of good things for that offense. The receiving court, like they, they lost K on Julian Grant, which is unfortunate because he was having an excellent season. The pieces are there. The defense is great. Noel Thorpe is maybe the best defensive coordinator in the league. I don't think the Alouettes have the best defense, but they have a really good defense. But I'm with you. I kind of think that I underestimate how good they'd be. And now I look at it and go, oh, this is a middle-of-the-road team that maybe if bounces go their way come playoff time, maybe they do make it to the Grey Cup. Like, I don't – they're not on Toronto's level. And, I mean, we're going to see them back-to-back games against the Argos coming up. Maybe they steal one of those because – it's the Argos. They're not going to go 17 and one. There's going to be a hiccup here or there. We already saw it earlier this season with the Stampeders. Some games are just going to be not overmatched because I think that roster top to bottom in Toronto is so good. But with Mike Charles, maybe they get him here. But come playoff time, I think we're they're going to probably if they, if they make the East final, which I think they will, they're going to be going into Toronto. It's going to be a tough matchup. But I do I do like what they're building there in Montreal a lot more than I thought I would going into the season. So the building blocks are definitely there for that team to go back to being, they're not going to be Calvillo level dominant, but they can get back to being a really competitive team. And, and like you said, considering where we thought they were with the Danny McChill, like every, 
we we thought when they hired Danny McCoachin and they fired Kahari Jones, we we're all like, well, this is a sinking ship. And they've been anything but they've been, they, I won't say great, but they've been really damn good since that happened. And, and I don't think anyone saw that coming. Even the most ardent supporters of the Alouettes probably didn't think that, oh, we're firing a head coach midseason. They, most of that fan base didn't want Machocha taking over. They remember how kind of his tenure ended in Edmonton. They're thinking this guy. And I think they've defied all expectations. And I think that's a really good football team that could be building something for the future. Maybe in a year or two, we're talking about them as the cream of the crop. You know what I mean? Yeah, it, it could change that quickly because, I mean, last year at this time, when we talked about Toronto as the cream of the crop, we weren't. Nope. But they were building themselves to be. They were competitive in games. They were they were never an easy out at that point, and then they turned it up a notch. It, they pretty much took the Winnipeg playbook because, remember, in 2019, Winnipeg was a third-place team and got mm-hmm. hot in the playoffs. Toronto, same thing. They were about that about that level they were they were they were better than 10 and 8 which was which was what winnipeg was in 19 but they showed in the playoffs that they were better than their record said and then they hit and then they hit the accelerator when the net when the new season came yeah for sure and now i i guess we'll get to the argus when we talk about their domination of tie cuts on labor day but like we didn't to just tease that a little bit we didn't see their a game against hamilton and they still scored 40 points and won that game by two touchdowns. Like the Argos right now, as painful as it is for me to say, sitting here in my apartment computer room in Hamilton, they're the team to beat right now. And I don't think it's they're number one with no, with no question. No, right no, no, there, there really isn't. It's, it's, it's their league right now. And I mean, we, again, it's the CFL, it's pro football. Anything can happen. We saw that you bring up the 2019 bombers, the 2019 tie cats were crushing everybody and then ran into the blue and gold dynamite in the gray cup it can happen we'll just have to wait to see but that's that's for way way down the line let's keep going with uh what, what we saw this past week before we started really getting off the rails well since since i keep bringing up the bombers anyway i suppose we do have to talk about the bombers game against saskatchewan uh didn't turn out the way i'd hoped of course but i mean that's labor day that's what's going to happen uh I did want to make mention before we go into any sort of craziness or weird or debates or any <laughs> sort of controversial things that may have happened that the thing that stood out to me in this game on Saskatchewan's side was the poised Jake Dolagala hat. He wasn't always making the perfect throw. His receivers weren't always making great catches. But he wasn't flustered by anything. I think he took two or three sacks, if I'm not mistaken. This is just off of memory at this point. He took two or three sacks where he was maneuvering in the pocket and couldn't get out fast enough or wasn't able to wasn't able to slide away from the pressure, but he did not look rattled at any point in that game. That's a big step forward for Saskatchewan. If 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 he's that if he's gonna be the type of quarterback that doesn't get rattled by anything, maybe they have a find. Yeah. And that's a pretty big stage. Too. Like I know he played in some big games, like he was an NFL draft pick. I think he was with what the Cincinnati Bengals. So it's not as if he's not used to large crowds, big stages, stuff like that. But on that stage to against that defense in that moment to not look out of place. And I, I know we're, we're in the hot take business and I, I've said things that I was way wrong on. I'm sure you've done the same. The what, me? No, about... never. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> um, 
but there was all that talk about tall quarterbacks and it's like what a weird sort of like hill to land on where it's like this guy's not going to be successful because he's too tall and i get that like you know taylor cornelius oh he's tall and he can do all this and doesn't work out and again i guess we fit things into our narrative so to speak like we try to find a reason to either like something or dislike something but you're right in the moment he was super poised i think going into that game the bombers had won what six or seven in a row against saskatchewan they as as you i'm sure love to point out they big games in in that mosaic new mosaic stadium they always tend to win this was the one i even going in i felt like uh, like i'm not a big believer in saskatchewan i think they're much like much like montreal kind of nine and nine, 10 and eight feel to them. They'll make the playoffs. I don't know how well they'll do, but these last two weeks for him go like knocking off the lions. And I, now granted it was at home, but they knock off the lions, knock off the, the bombers. I mean, Mason fine. Wasn't doing that. And I know Trevor Harris is their guy. If he comes back this season, much like in Hamilton with Bo Levi Mitchell, he'll reassume the starting position, but you're right. They found a guy. And sometimes these injuries to your superstar quarterbacks we're seeing in Hamilton can give you an, a glimpse of what you could have in the guys behind him. Now, obviously with Dola Gala, it's worked out much better than it has for Taylor Powell and Hamilton, but Dola Gala is also, he was with the Riders last year. So he's more familiar with the league, more familiar with that team. Kelly Jeffrey, while he wasn't running the offense last year, was on staff. So some familiarity there, but I think, I don't think we can underscore just how well he's played these last two games and how well he played against the Bombers because beating Winnipeg is, it's still a feat. I know people are talking talk about the Bombers being old. Maybe they're not the peak Bombers that they were the last few seasons. That's still a really damn good football team. There's still nine wins. They're still going to make the playoffs. They still might win the West, fin- finish first. That, you know what I mean? To do that on that stage, and essentially what was a shootout, like that was a back-and-forth game for most of it. It goes down to the wire. They make the big play. They go to overtime and win it. Like You, you can't really ask for much more from your – third string quarterback in a Labor Day type environment to, to perform at that level. Like what else could you ask for from him? No. And like you mentioned, he's had a year under his belt. This is his third start. I believe uh, he did have a start yeah, last did, year did, in the, wait, did, in a COVID ravage game. Year? I don't know. He, he, the start he had last year was against Toronto. I want to say, Okay, and okay. and the and the team was COVID ravaged and yes. nobody expected them to stick around. And yet they did for most of the game until it fell apart yeah. at the end, if if memory serves. And then BC, Winnipeg, back-to-back wins. I mean, that that tells you something. That, t- that tells you that he's not afraid of the big stage, and that's a huge thing for a quarterback because we even, we even see quarterbacks that have a lot more playing time have trouble with happy feet in the pocket. He doesn't have that. Not yet, anyway. No, and you would think behind an offensive line that's not great with a rushing attack that has been hit or miss with receivers, like you said, who weren't always making the plays that they need. That you usually need the rest of your offense to help out a young quarterback. It felt like he was the one leading the charge, which makes it even more impressive. Yeah, and, and then on Winnipeg's side, they had a lot of trouble getting going in this game. It took until late in the second quarter for the offense to find their groove. Uh, the defense kept them in it for the most part. I mean, you look at 32 to 30 and you think high scoring, but tied at 24 at the end of regulation isn't exactly my idea of setting the scoreboard on fire. So 
both defenses did things. But here, here's the thing. Neither team made huge mistakes. Winnipeg threw the one interception early that Nick Marshall jumped. But there's another thing. Saskatchewan did not turn the ball over. Very impressive considering it's, they have a quarterback on their third start. Well, and going up against a secondary with a ball hawk like Demario Houston, who leads league interceptions, who has been picking off everyone he can find. You know what I mean? So, oh, and for you them, could tell on replay. Oh, he was, was looking like, for it. I'm, I'm, no, not quite, no, no. And he was, he didn't, never took the big leap to make a pick, but he was ready, and he was never given the opportunity. Yeah, and. Not turning the ball over against not not that there's a recipe to beat Winnipeg, but the recipe to not lose football games is you don't make mistakes. You don't and turn it over because Winnipeg will kill you. Yeah, and that we how many times have we seen it over the years, especially immediately following a, a big defensive play, turnover on downs, interception, fumble, whatever you have, or a big they get the they get the deep, they do a two and out, they get a big punt return. Very next play, it's Caleros going deep to Wolotarski or Schoen or Dembski or you know what I mean. It's Kenny Law, like the weapons they have on that offense, and they, they take that kill shot right away. And then all of a sudden, you're, you look up the scoreboard, you turn the ball over twice, and you're down 21 to three. And it's midway through the second quarter, and you're like, that's and, a then, they feed Bra- and then they feed Brady. And then which they is feed- how they got through the first two quarters for the most part, because yep. Brady Oliveri carried that offense on his back for the first two quarters. Yep. And that's been their recipe for success create turnovers, get stops on defense, and then chunk plays. That what like some of that was there, but they didn't get the turnover parts. So they didn't get the short fields. They didn't get the opportunities to seize momentum like they have in previous encounters. So, I mean, it wasn't the biggest story from the game. I, I guess at some point we're going to have to discuss the the giant elephant in the room. But it was definitely a very impressive performance from Saskatchewan all around to mm-hmm. hem in. Again, they gave up thirty points, but like I said, twenty four twenty four at at the end of regulation. Scoring touchdowns in overtime, not exactly the hardest thing to do with the CFL's overtime format, but I thought the Saskatchewan defense played pretty well. I thought they, like you said, I think Claire said, what, five completions, six completions in the first half? Like, they did a bang-up job hemming him in. So it was uh, it was an impressive performance from the Riders. You can't take yeah. it away from them. And there's one more thing I want to be uh, that I'm impressed about here. Winnipeg had the ball with two minutes and 30 seconds to go, I want to say. Needing a couple first downs to put the game away up three, couldn't do it. Yeah, Saskatchewan's defense stepped up, and then going back to what we were talking about, Jake Dolagala surgically moving that team down the field, almost scoring the go-ahead touchdown. That didn't quite happen that way, but got him in field goal range. They made they made the kick. They and then took over in overtime. Well, and they milked so much time off the clock on the drive too. Like they did, it was almost a perfect drive from Saskatchewan. If it would have ended in a touchdown, it would have been the perfect drive. Ending in a field goal, then you go to overtime, anything can happen. But I mean, what what more could you ask for out of a out of a third string quarterback playing on that stage? Like he did everything you could have hoped for if you're a Ryder fan. So I, I, I very very impressive. I think is the way that I would I would look at it. All right, yeah, and. I guess we do finally have to get to the reason they were down uh, late in the game. I don't know. I'm just trying to find a way to phrase this. Um, Pete Robertson just making a foolish play. Let's go there. Foolish yep, that's play a, that's after, very kind after, way of putting it. after a 
after a second down stop that would have put Winnipeg in a pretty easy field goal position, decides to just go ahead and headbutt Zach Kolaros, draw the penalty, draw the ire of an entire province, and give Winnipeg a chance to put six on the board instead of three. Yeah, so he also drew the ire of his teammates. If you go back and watch the play, Mike Johnson's out there with his hands in the air going like, what the bleep are you doing? Almost like you could, but he didn't, you don't see his lips move, but the body language can tell you what it was. Yeah. It was one of the dumbest penalties I've ever seen a player take. We can talk about, and I'm sure your comment section will light up with people being like, Oh, he's a Hamilton guy. He's Smoney Lawrence, this Smoney Lawrence, that I can accept or at least accepts the wrong word because you never want to see guys go after guys. But in the heat of a play, I think there was a play in this one where uh, one of the Winnipeg defenders, this is something that Riders fans have been like, well, why, where's the outrage over this headshot, blah, blah, blah. In the middle of a play, stuff happens. The players are moving so fast. Things happen. Maybe some guys are taking cheap shots. Maybe they're not, regardless of your stance on that. If it happens during a play, that's at least somewhat acceptable in my opinion because of the way how fast the game goes this was clearly like there was a solid like beat 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 Calaris turns around and he just straight up headbutts the dude and it's like what are you doing and then he's like gesticulating and he's like flexing and then he kind of kind of dawns on him he's like oh I screwed up but it's like I just I, I can't think of and maybe you can. Your maybe your memory is better than mine. Can you think of a play, like a post-play incident, this stupid? Like I've seen malicious things, like Chris Edwards earlier this year when he shoved Austin Mack after the game. Like that was that didn't hurt the team in any way because the game was over, but it was idiotic and cowardly and all that stuff. This could have turned the game completely around if Winnipeg scores, and then the Riders don't find a way down the field and win this in overtime. Pete Robertson is public enemy number one, not just in Winnipeg, but also in Saskatchewan now, too. Yeah, as far as just inexplicable and terribly timed, I'm having a hard time thinking of one. Yeah, it's just... And I think maybe the most disappointing thing about the, the aftermath of it has been seeing Ryder fans dig through film like they're writing a thesis on headshot, like they're doing a doctorate on violence in sports and they're bringing up incidents from five, six years ago to like, well, you didn't say anything about this. Why are you so mad about that? It's like, these things don't happen in a vacuum. We 30 years ago, we didn't, we would have looked at this and been like, who cares? You know what I mean? But we've even, over time, we just keep developing what we find acceptable behavior in sports and in, in society. And it's just been considering, and I will say this from a, a Tiger Cats perspective, how we've had public enemy number one in Regina four and a half, for four and a half years now for a hit on the very same quarterback, I might add, that now because he wears a different color. Those Ryder fans are all of a sudden, well, Caleros flopped. Caleros is a baby. Caleros is a trash talker. He kind of deserves what he's getting. And again, I'm not trying to paint the entire fan base with, with one brush. I know there's a lot of people who get 
their knickers in a knot over that. I'm not doing that. But there's been enough of it, including the guy who I know a lot of Riders fans dislike, but is, for better or worse, the public voice of that team throwing temper tantrums on social media about this kind of stuff. It's just, it's it was an ugly incident. It didn't need to happen. It was stupid. I don't know how you defend it. I don't need the whataboutisms of people. Well, this happened here, so let's knock it off. Just, he, he did something stupid. He's been suspended for a game. And I, I don't want to say, and, and I don't he, say he, he owned up to it. He did. He, he, did. he, he acknowledged he screwed up. He doesn't have a reputation of this kind of thing. It's one of those things that happens. A punishment's been levied. If it continues to happen going forward, I'm sure the narrative will change on that. But at this point, as far as I'm concerned, something stupid happened. There was a appropriate punishment and we move on with our lives. I think so too. I think a lot of it though is like writers do get piled on sometimes. I'll give them that. But this also comes a little more than a year after the whole Garrett Marino stuff. And I'm sure that that's played into this as well. Like, but in it isolated itself. I'm with you, man. Like it happened. He accepted responsibility for it. The league met it out, meted out their punishment. It's over. It's done with now they're playing again this weekend. So that, obviously brings a little bit of spice to it as well, but maybe with him not playing this week, because I don't know, have you, I haven't looked, he's not appealing the suspension. I haven't seen anything about him appealing the suspension. So I, I'm assuming that he's not going to, um, if you've seen something else, please correct me. I haven't uh, seen anything but, else myself. No. Okay. So it doesn't, that doesn't look, so mean doesn't by the time playing. the show comes out that it might not have, you know, what have you, but yeah. The, and the thing the is miracle of taping something before it's put out. Yeah. And the thing is, if he does, that's well within his, like, that's within his rights as a member of the CFLPA. Like, I don't think, I don't think a player appealing a suspension necessarily means that they don't think they're wrong. It's just, that's part of the process. You know what I mean? Like every player almost unanimously, universally will appeal a, a given suspension. It's very rare that you see someone not do it. So if he does, I It'd don't think it looks poorly on him. Not to. If yeah, they decided exactly. that if they if if between him and and the team, they know it's gonna. They know he won't win an appeal. But if they decide they'd rather have him for a game down the line instead of this game, you can. That's about the only time I've ever seen a non a non appeal. Yeah, I mean, Marino didn't appeal his suspensions last year, and I think that might have been more of a situation of if you go away for a month maybe this heat will die down. Like it obviously didn't. And again, I don't want to relitigate something that happened last year, but I'm just using it as an example in this case. Mm. But you, again, I just, I, I, I just, I guess we can kind of put a bow on it. It happened. It was, it wasn't the worst incident. I, I mean, it wasn't the worst incident I've seen. On a, I think the Chris Edwards thing was more dirty and cowardly than what Pete Robertson did. Cause at least Pete Robertson's thing, I can say, well, the emotions are high and he's in the middle of the game and it's coming down to the end. It's like, again, I'm not excusing the behavior, but it's like, I right. can at least emotions say like, run high. That something yeah, happens people do stupid stuff. Yeah. People do stupid stuff. And when it's premeditated, like the Chris Edwards thing, that's when it to gets, me, Yeah. It, like, I mean, it's not like he, it's not like he went to shake his hand and then headbutted the guy, headbutted Zach in the face. You know what I mean? So right. again, I, Maybe, maybe we should just move on. I think we've probably gone too long on this anyway. I just feel like we keep repeating ourselves. It's over. It's done with. I think everyone just needs to kind of move on with their lives. Stop relitigating everything all the time. Yeah. It, it, 
sitting here as a bomber fan in this chair, I'm just like, yeah, I, I, there's nothing more I could say that's going to improve the situation. So let's just move on. But I, yeah, I agree. That, no, and that's just it too, right? Like the side that's entrenched in the, in like this was not that bad are going to stay there. The side that are like, this is the worst thing ever are going to like, there's always, especially in the era of social media, there's always going to be people who take it to the extreme. I saw people saying you should be booted out of the league. And it's like, guys, that's, let's be re- realistic here. There's someone, I think it was Troy Westwood who said he should be out for the rest of the season. It's like, come on, man. Like you played the game. You should know better than that. And there's people who said it's not a big deal. Yeah. Obviously there's a whole view on the spectrum. I think you and I are kind of, and I think we tend to be this way most of the time, especially in all the times I've talked to you very middle of the road. Like, okay, this is what they're doing. This is what it's done. All right, fine. Cool. Let's move on. Yeah. Probably best that we weren't talking about this, like the three minutes after it happened, but you know. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and, and you know what though, that is, there's something to be said for, you know, cooler heads prevailing, taking your time. I know that I've, like Mike and I, we do a post game show and I'm a lot harsher immediately following a loss than I would be if I had slept on it. Cause sometimes my, my written pieces for three down my post game columns, they'll come out the next day. So it's like, I've had a ch- like, I'll do some preliminary stuff and then I'll leave it, go to bed, wake up in the morning and be like, Oh, this is a little harsher than I think it really intended to be. So I do think there is something for letting time kind of get in the way, letting, letting things play out too. Like, we're because of social media, people are reacting instantaneously to these things. And I think when it's a, it's a rivalry game, it's Labor Day weekend. It's a big game for both teams. The Bombers could have clinched a playoff spot with a win. The Riders obviously could have gotten themselves back into the conversation, maybe a home playoff game. So like tempers are running high to begin with from those fan bases. You throw this into the mix. It's a Sunday before a day where no one goes to work, both in the States, which is, probably useful for your your audience being american and in canada like labor days across both borders so maybe people had a few too many adult beverage you know what i mean like just everything's kind of heightened around it so i think taking our time to discuss it letting this be we're recording this on a wednesday night like letting it kind of play out probably allows us to have a more measured response than maybe we would have maybe there'd be a lot more cursing if we'd recorded this sunday night you know what i mean I would like to hope not, but I can't promise that. Uh, but you've also had a couple days to sleep on your team's game on Monday. Toronto going into Tim Hortons Field and acting like they own the place. Because they do. They do own that place now. That's back-to-back Labor Day losses for the Tabbies. Hasn't happened since they lost three in a row from 06 to 08. It's only the second time or third time ever that they've lost back-to-back on Labor Day, the other time was in the 90s when Doug Flutie was the quarterback for the Argos, so that's to be expected. It was much like I expected in Regina. I thought Labor Day magic would take over, and pretty much before I even really settled in, it was 17 nothing Argos, and I'm just like, okay, another Labor Day loss. The, the scoreline flatters the Ticats in this one, quite frankly. They were down 20 with like 15 seconds left. I even think a 20-point loss would have flattered them. And like I said earlier, I don't think the Argos particularly played all that well. I thought Chad Kelly had one of his worst games, but yet he still throws two touchdown passes, runs in another. AJ Olette throws a touchdown. It was it was a teeth kicking. It's what the Argos have done to pretty much every team they've played this year. And they're making Hamilton their whipping boy. Since, since that big comeback in the East Final in 21, I think they've played seven games against each other, and the Argos have won six of them. So... 
This is a very lopsided rivalry right now. And not the way you were hoping for. And yeah, I'd have to agree. Even the 41-28 scoreline is very flattering because the yeah. whole, until until like early in the fourth quarter, it was a lot bigger, a lot wider of a gap. And, and But when you're playing garbage time with 20, 10 minutes to go in a CFL game, that's not a good sign. No, not at all. And like the thing was, is if you look at the, the way the game played out, the Argos got the big lead early. Ticats kind of chipped away, chipped away, chipped away. And then the Argos do what they do. The teams get somewhat close, even if it, and it, well, I think it was a seven point mark. It was 17, 10 at one point. And then next thing you know, it was 31, 13. So like, that's what Toronto does is like, they have these lulls and this is where maybe a better team in a, in a gray cup or in an East final could get them. If they go into one of these lulls and teams take advantage of their mistakes, like, Chad Kelly threw two picks. The Ticats got three points out of them. They turned those three points into 14 points. We're having a much different conversation today. Now, the Ticats aren't good enough to capitalize on those mistakes, but a team like Winnipeg, a team like BC, maybe even a team like Montreal, they could be good enough. I mean, Winnipeg definitely is. We haven't seen Winnipeg and Toronto play yet this year. We saw them, Toronto beat their snot out of the Lions, and we've seen them handle the Owls pretty... Actually, that's the only game they played against Montreal. It was, it was a pretty close game, if I, if I recall. So... Against the better teams, maybe those types of errors, those types of lulls. Like, I think the Argos scored, I think they scored three, maybe seven points in the in the second and third quarters combined. But because the Ticats aren't very good, they couldn't take advantage of getting those interceptions, making the Argos make mistakes, having a decent-ish defensive performance for a couple of quarters. Like, you just saw the different, like, and you can't say it's a talent thing because you look at the Ticats roster and there's some stars on this team. But it's very clear that these two teams are on different stratospheres right now. And it was it was just very obvious in watching the game going, oh, this is why they're good. This is why they're not. Yeah. And I wish I could say something to that would be remotely positive for Hamilton right now. I just can't no. find it. I there's, mean, there's I guess if I had to say something positive, it's like they're in a playoff spot right now. But, I mean, we've been talking about yeah, that and- sixth spot being kind of uh, – kind of a turtle derby for weeks now and right now they're ahead yeah and they go into ottawa this week on a ridiculously short week they play friday after playing on monday the red blacks are coming off a bye like it's one of the most idiotic scheduling things the league did this year i don't know how you allow that to happen the argos are playing at home this week too against montreal like why not do the back-to-back and then take the argo tie game from later in the season Again, there's a lot of things that don't make sense to me about about what they've done here. But even if they lose to Ottawa this week, still in a playoff position because they own the season series over the Red Blacks. So even though they'll be tied, both both teams will be four and eight. Hamilton will still be up on them. I don't believe in Calgary. I I don't think even though the Edmonton with Trey Ford's been a nice story the last few weeks. I don't I don't I think they're just two they oh and nine. It that's that's a hole you can't dig out of. And you're right. It's it's a turtle derby. It's a great way to put it with these these four teams kind of inching towards this sixth playoff spot. And quite honestly, in looking at the four of them, the Ticats, chief among them, they just feel like you're going to be cannon fodder for what I'm assuming is going to be the Montreal Alouettes. Like, I just don't see how any of these teams, and I'll put the Ticats top of the list, going to Montreal and and do anything against the Alouettes. Even if you don't believe in the Alouettes, you just look at these other teams, just go, they're it's it's a big wolf because you 
you can make all the excuses you want for Hamilton. Oh, they're starting their third string quarterback and he's a raw rookie. And, but he's looked the best out of the guys they've had this year. Matthew Schultz had one good game against Edmonton. Bo Levi Mitchell, when he's been in there has looked awful. Like maybe the worst quarterback in the league we've seen this year was him. And then, well, no, Taylor Cornelius was the worst. So maybe Bo's second worst. I, I, you're, you're, you're going to get Bo back eventually. He's going to re- resume his starting position. Is that going to make a, much of a difference? Everyone was so happy when Tommy Condell got fired. Scott Milanovic is going to change. I wrote a piece for three down about you're it. That's going to change get that- your entire offensive scheme midseason. No, and you're going to get that bump. You always get a bump. You make a change. We saw it in Edmonton. They get it. They make a change at offense coordinator. We saw it in Hamilton. They make a change at offense coordinator. It's that short-term bump, but then teams become who they are. And a friend of mine pointed this out when I was talking to him after the after the uh, the change at OC for Hamilton, and he's like, there's only so many plays you call in football. He was a football coach years and years, years ago. He's like, there's only so like everyone has the same plays. It's just when you call them, what you call, how you call. Like it's not as if Milanovic is going to come in here and completely reinvent the wheel. Also, he's been an offense coordinator before. You know what he likes to do. He likes to throw short. He likes to get the balls in his receiver's hands, in his playmaker's hands. He likes to run the football. And if you've looked at Hamilton's offense, that's what they've done. It's not been a lot of deep passing, even though that's the one thing that Ticats fans were screaming for when Condell was here. You got to go deep. You got to go deep. Milanovic is not a deep passing guy. He had Ricky Ray and Anthony Calvillo. What did they, Ricky Ray threw the nicest corner route in the league. But he didn't throw it every play. It was a lot of get it out quickly to guys like Chad Owens, guys like Jamel Richardson in Montreal, Kerry Watkins, your Ben Cahoons. Let those guys do it. Avon Coburn or Brandon Whitaker in the backfield. Chad Cackert in the backfield with the Argos. Like, it's going to be a quick passing game and run the football type of offense. And it worked. Wonders against BC. Toronto's not BC. They almost went looked like they used the exact same game plan that used against the Lions. And the Argos are like, we know exactly how to stop this. And the Ticats had no answers for it. Right. Uh, and, and something we've been bringing up periodically here anyway, is that the feeling that if you can get past BC's pass rush, if you can neutralize them in any way, their secondary and linebackers aren't going to stop you. Yep. Winnipeg proved that point and Hamilton further showed what it was. Yeah. And I mean, it's one thing to get beat by a bomber's passing attack and rushing attack, it's another to get beaten by Hamilton. So, I mean, that's exactly what it is. BC is BC built their team to stop the pass on their defensive line, so you can bully them as an offensive line. That's what the Ticats did. They tried to do it against the Argos and with Sean Oakman and Aramalade and Robbie Smith, and I'm sure there's a couple of guys I'm forgetting. You know, you go to the linebacking core with McManus and Adarius Pickett, like, you're just, you're not going to be able to do that. So, I'm, I'm, I think the Ticats can still make the playoffs. I think this could be a seven and 11 or eight and 10 team that will sneak in, but I don't see this team going on any sort of deep playoff run. Whereas I look at the Argos and I go, maybe they can get got, but if you're betting money, it's hard to bet against them right now. Yeah. I mean, the smart money right now is on them celebrating a great cup championship and your stadium. Yep. Which they did in 96. So that'll be fun to do once again. Just exactly what you were hoping for. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, there's nothing more I wanted when I bought my Grey Cup ticket than a potential Winnipeg-Toronto Grey Cup rematch. The team that the team that won it the last time they were here 
and destroyed the possibility of this stupid drought coming to an end versus the one team that even though I try my best to be objective, uh, I don't like, yes, I still root for the tie cats, but I also like to keep an open mind about everything else going on in the league, just because it's kind of my job to be a little more objective. There's still that part of me where I just can't like the Argos. I can accept that they're good and I can revise my thesis on things. Like I was a very big Chad Kelly skeptic. That looks foolish now, but I've come around. He's a good quarterback. I'm not going to hate on the guy. Got that contract extension last week's very much deserving regardless of what anyone else says. I still don't want to see them hoisting a cut. Like I, I don't leave games early. Might leave that one early if they're up big in the Grey Cup, and I know they're going to win. Yeah, and it's even doubly disappointing too because Hamilton tried to load up for this for this sure Cup too, and it just uh, hasn't turned out anything close to what it, it was a long shot to begin with. Because when you're trying to bring in a quarterback to, uh, you know. Uh, when when Bo when Bo of twenty when twenty twenty two Bo Levi Mitchell is your best option on the trader free agent market, you're in a big trouble anyway. As far as bringing in a new quarterback, but then all the other veterans they brought in for this one year run haven't really made a difference. No, not really. I mean, they're I boneheaded shove aside Chris Edwards has been good Jameer Thurman's been good Casey Sales I think has actually been quietly excellent but Joel Figueroa just got back into the lineup and the off that the offensive line wasn't supposed to be a concern it's been a concern most of the season Bo you're right I think we I think we as a CFL collective sort of thought okay I'm willing to give even though he didn't look good in 21 didn't look good in 22 I'm still willing to give him the benefit of the doubt that Maybe the offseason would help him get healthy. Yeah. He's been dealing yeah, with shoulder like, issues. That's just it. And he missed half the season in Calgary last year, not because he was hurt, but because he was benched. And then he, so he had all that time to heal up. He had an offseason. Like you're thinking, okay, maybe he's only 33. Maybe he's got something left in him. That doesn't look to be the case. Jagger Davis was a massive bust, so much so that they tried to trade him. Couldn't because he got hurt. Like, yeah, they did. They loaded up Kwaku Boateng they brought in. He looked like he was going to be a guy, but then he never even plays it down for the team. He retires. Now he's coaching at his old uh, university, Wilfred Laurier. Like Duke Williams hasn't really done all that much. And then earlier today, he's like firing off tweets about being mad, like leaving. And then Orlando Steinauer was asked about it. And he said, he's not going to play this week. He's been doing like, you don't know what's now. Is there locker room problems there? Like, you just don't know what's going on. It's just been one kind of disaster after another. And it's gotten me to the point where I'm wondering if they, they wanted to win in this window. They want, once they, once they had the really good team in 2019 and they knew that they were hosting the cup in 21, I think that they had this idea that this was our window to, to be that team that finally caps a run with a home championship. Then when they got the, the second one, because the 21 cup was COVID shortened and there wasn't a full gray cup. I think they looked at it and go, okay, we've got, we can, we can extend this window another two years. And they had to make the decision on the quarterback last year. They choose Dane Evans over Jeremiah Mazzoli. That didn't work out. Then this year they move on from Evans and go with Bo. That hasn't worked out. So I think that maybe after this, where it, the gray cup's not going to be in Hamilton for some time and rebuilding in the CFL is doesn't have to be 
a three, four, five year thing. It can be like, I know we've seen in Ottawa and Edmonton, things can get hinky if you don't get the right guys, but maybe it might be time to kind of tear this thing down to the studs and start fresh. I'm not necessarily saying that you get rid of everybody. I don't even know what you do on the coaching staff or in the front office. Like these are for people that make way more money than me need to make these decisions. But I am starting to wonder if maybe it might be time to kind of turn the page on this iteration of the, cause we've seen there was the Belfay era, which was competitive. Then there was the Austin era where they were a cup contender. Then they took, then there was the June Jones small era. Then we've gone to the Steinhauer thing. And like each one has had their ups and downs. And once the thing starts going down, there's no turning it back up. We saw it with Belfay. They, they, they stayed about the same, took a little dip, couldn't get them back up. Then we saw with Austin, once things went south, they never rebounded. And now we're kind of seeing the same thing with Steinhauer here. Things are going in the wrong direction and they haven't been able to pull the nose up. So it might be time to completely gut this thing, start fresh and see if maybe in a couple of years, this team can get back to being the tie cats that we've seen the last decade that have made four trips to the Grey cup and six or seven trips to the East final. All right. And then finally to close off the week, we have two teams that are, dealing with these same situations here. Edmonton goes into Calgary, almost stuns Calgary, but doesn't quite pull it off. Story of their season for the most part. Yeah, great game though. Like the the one thing, even the Ticats game that wasn't excellent, it was four really good football games that we saw this past weekend. Like the Labor Day weekend branding paid off. Like that Owls BC game was fairly competitive. Obviously you get overtime in Saskatchewan. And then you, we got to talk about, and then we got this one back and forth. Like Edmonton looked like they were going to like, if Edmonton had won this game, we're talking about them. Are they going to sneak into the playoffs? Yeah. At that point, at that point, they're in striking distance. Well, they're a game back, technically two games back, but a game back of the stamps for fourth, which is a game back, or they would have been tied with the stamps for fourth and a game back of the tie cats for that, for the crossover. It's like, Holy smokes. And this team do it. Stan's making an epic comeback. Can't take anything away from them, but man, has this been a disappointing season for them all the way around, right? Like, I don't know if this is just a blip, but I, is it fair? Can, can we say the run is over in Calgary? Like, is it, even though maybe, maybe they, they make the playoffs, maybe they, sneak, I don't think they're going to make it in the West. Maybe they sneak it in the East. Is it fair to say that the run in Calgary that started with, Danny Barrett in 1990, Wally Buono and Danny Barrett in 1991 against the Argos finally come to an end. I don't think it's quite fair to say that because they did have their their issues with F Troop early in the 2000s. Yep. If it if it if this extends for a couple seasons where they're fighting for their playoff lives and just aren't aren't scaring anybody anymore, then yeah, we put a capper on it at the end of what last year maybe. But I'd say we're a little early for that. All right. Well, I'd rather be a little early than a little late because I've every year I'm just like, no, the stamps, they always find a quarterback. Like, I mean, that run of quarterbacks, Flutie, Garcia, Dickinson, Burris, Bo, you just always think it's going to continue, right? Um, yeah. And they even had some decent ones in between, too, here and there. Yeah. I mean, I mean, they won a great cup with Marcus Crandall as their quarterback for crying out loud. So, if you can do that, that just tells you how good this this franchise has been over the last thirty years. It just feels as if the one I, I, you know. I'm curious. I don't think we talked about this the last time I was here, but I'm curious to bounce this idea off you. Edmonton mm-hmm. struggles. They got a, they got a head coach 
who's also runs the whole show in Chris Jones. The Ticats have struggled. They have a head coach in Orlando Steinhauer who's also president of football operations. And the Stamps are struggling. And they also have their head coach also as their general manager. I think that teams are going to this model because of the stupid salary cap with the football op stuff. But I also think it hurts teams. And maybe we did touch on this because I think we talked about the O'Shea-Kyle Walter situation the last time I was on with you. And I wonder if that's what's going to happen in Winnipeg with Walter's contract being up and maybe they hand the keys to the franchise over to O'Shea and maybe he's not ready to, not that he's not ready, but maybe putting on too many hats. Because I think we've seen in Edmonton, Calgary, Hamilton, if the head coach is also doing something else, it might be too much on their plate. Like you should have a general manager who does things. So I'm curious as to your opinion on this. Like, do you think I'm onto something with this theory that you look at the teams that are struggling and three of the four that right now are under 500 and out of the playoff mix, three of them have a head coach also doing another job. I'm just curious. What I, your think thoughts it has, I think it has a lot to do with it. As, okay. I mean, I mean I'm, with, I'm just glad I'm not an idiot. Yeah. I mean, in Edmonton's situation, it feels like they're getting G. Roy Simon ready to be a general manager. If I'm if I'm in that situation in Edmonton, I say here, here G. Roy, here is the uh, you're in charge of all of our paper, all the paperwork stuff. We got to make sure the rosters the rosters are compliant, what have you. And Chris Jones would have final say on personnel simply because head coaches like to buy the groceries. That's what they they would. That's why head coaches take the GM role. Like I could see that kind of situation work. Where hey, you're in charge of the scouting department. You're in charge of the paperwork. You're in charge of league compliance. You have to work with the head coach. And the head coach has the final say on who sticks around and what you chase. But you're in charge of making the machinery run. Like if that's the situation, I could see it working. Unless there's a clash in personalities between the guy that runs the machinery and the guy that runs the team on the field, which is obviously a a situation that could happen in that. Because if you're giving the guy that's running the machine, if you're not giving the guy that's running the machinery, the pile say he could do, he could run that machinery as best he can. But if, but if the head coach decides to stick it in neutral, well, you're not going anywhere anyway. Well, look at Ottawa with Rick Campbell and Marcel Desjardins. That were great when they were collaborating, and as soon as Desjardins started making moves that Campbell didn't like, the wheels fell off, and that team stunk. Essentially, I just, yeah. I just, and that's at, always wondered, the situation that's going to happen. It's just a weird yep. situation to have the head coach also be the guy that makes the final decisions if he's not the one that's running the fo- the football ops machinery. Yeah, it just it just seems like the teams that have struggled the most in recent years are the ones where they've given too much power to one person. Because, like, why not follow the Winnipeg model? And I know it's easy to say, like, well, look what they've done. Just copy that. But the Argos are doing that. Like, Ryan Dinwiddie doesn't have say over who they bring. Like, they, obviously, they collaborate. Like, the coach and the GM, they have to be on the same page or else they it wouldn't work. But they're not going to hand Ryan Dinwiddie the front office and say, okay, you, you've been a damn good head coach. Well, now you're going to be negotiating contracts with these players. I think you. I think it almost helps when there's a separation there because then the coach isn't the guy in the room arguing or and or, telling the player, "Hey, you're only worth one fifty instead of two hundred. 
get over it. Exactly. Like it's it's like we see with the arbitration cases. I think the NHL and the and Major League Baseball have it where you're, it's like guys come out of it. And you then you hear stories, but like they I went in there to talk to them about a contract in there because they want it. They obviously teams want to get you at the lowest possible for the most value and players want to get as much money as they can. And it's like, I'm in there with my head coach. He's telling me all the things that I suck at. Like, how does that boost morale? So I just, I just think that you need to have a separation. And I think we're seeing, cause the down again, you're not ready to jump on it. I'll, I'll take the slings and arrows from people. If this turns around, you can point to me and say, it wasn't, it was, you might've been on my show, but it wasn't me that said it. The downfall of the Stampeders happened as Huffnagel started giving up more and more power and Dickinson started Taking more, and I'm not saying Dickens is a bad head coach and didn't didn't earn the right to to this position, but I just wonder if it's just too much for one person to do because for how many years in sports those have been two full time jobs. That's one guy to and do it. And we've seen it over and over. It became a thing in the NFL with coaches like Bill Parcells that yeah. people people you know he had won championships and he retired because of health issues. And then it's like, Oh, Oh my God, my team is terrible. We should get that guy. But what does he want to come? Oh, he wants full power. Sure. He, he wants to cook an Italian dish. He could buy Italian groceries. And that's exactly what he was, the way he phrased it when he was saying, this is why I want to do this. Uh, and it never works out. It never, it, very few times does that actually work out. Uh, without causing a lot of problems going forward. Yeah, and it can it can cause fissures between the coach and the star players. It can cause problems with the coach and other people in the front office. Like it just it just feels like a bad idea all the way yeah, around. It, and it, I think it's so much easier for the head coach to say, "Hey, hey, star, hey, star player, I'm sorry you didn't get X, Y, or Z that you wanted." It wasn't. It wasn't my call. It was the guy with yeah. the pencil. If it was up to it me, I'd the guy given, with the I'd calculator the and the pencil in the in the upper yeah. office. He yeah. can't say that if he's the guy with the calculator and the pencil in the upper office. Bingo. So I just, I just do wonder if some of these issues we're seeing with some of the teams that are struggling is because of that dynamic being set up. I'm just glad that I could bounce that off you and you didn't go, you're a complete moron. Because something I've been bouncing around in my head all season. Because just watching teams struggle, it's like what is the common denominator here? And it's like, that's the one thing that I keep landing on. Okay. Now it's my turn to say something that you might think I'm stupid for saying. Are we being a little bit too hard on Jake Mayer? It depends on, see this, this comes off to me as like some of the, when you see like, Oh, is he overrated? You know what I mean? Well, it depends on where you rate him. Like, I think, I think he's got the talent around him and I think he's, doing a good, I just think his decision-making sometimes leaves a lot to be decided because there's times where he looks like, holy smokes, this could be one of the best quarterbacks in the league. And then there's times where you go, how bad was Bo if this guy beat him out? You know what I mean? But like, I do, I do think maybe we're being a little harsh on him because I don't think he's, he's not a bad quarterback. You know what I mean? Like, I don't no. think you can put the and blame on the Stampeders on him. No, and something that's been percolating ever since, ever since Calgary almost beat Winnipeg, Winnipeg, but three weeks ago, I want to say two, three weeks ago, his receivers hung him out to dry that game. Yep. And then the last couple games, he's come out and he's done fairly well. I well, and he and he. I was I was pretty rough on him early on. Mm-hmm. But it's starting. It, it just feels like, yeah, maybe, maybe I had a point, but maybe, uh, maybe it wasn't as bad as I was thinking it was. 
who's the receiver? What's the receiver that Malik Henry? Like, how good would this offense be if Malik, like, you'd have Malik Henry, Marquis Ambles, Reggie Bagleton, and Mark and Michelle as your four but do they get, American receivers? But do they get do they Mark get and Mar- Michelle back if Henry doesn't if, go down? May, maybe, maybe not. Maybe not. Do they bring in Marquis Ambles if Henry doesn't go down? Like, yeah, sure. I understand that one thing happens, it ripple effect changes everything. But I mean, but yeah, that's fun to dream on, isn't it? It is. It is. And even if you didn't, you would probably still have three of those four guys. Like if you don't get Michelle, you probably do get Ambles. If you don't get Ambles, you probably are able to get Michelle. And then you have like the running, like, cause what Calgary's done latter year, Bo, and now with mayor is they've ran the football really well and they haven't had Kadeem carry. And even when Dietrich Mills was, was filling in rather admirably for him, Teams didn't necessarily respect the deep ball, so you could still kind of load up the box to stop them because you know that they're trying to get the ball out quickly. That's their that was their game plan because that was the whole thing. I, if you watch the Stampeders game and you were online at the time, it was just like he's not throwing deep, he's not throwing deep, he's not throwing deep. His receivers have a million yak, like you know what I mean. Like that was the the uh, the criticisms of him, and I and that, that was right where that, I was at too. Yeah. And, and, and I think at the time it was fair, but then you watch this, they have allowed him to air it a little bit more. I think he has been a little bit more successful. I just don't think that the team is all that good anymore. I think that they've been no. lapped by the field, essentially. So and I don't think it's defense, necessarily... And, the, and I don't think their defense is yep. that hot anymore. No, it's not. Like, I think that they're... Rel- I, think, I think their defense is in a very similar place to Hamilton's. I think the coordinator is he's got the guys he wants, but I think some of them, I think he's too loyal to some guys that maybe like, I'm going to, okay. So I'm going to say something rather controversial, especially that'll be here in Hamilton. Kyle Wilson just was lost for the season with a torn Achilles. But in my opinion, he should have been starting at will linebacker, not Simone Lawrence. I think you can watch Simone Lawrence play. And while there are brief spells where he looks like the player he was five years ago, He's very clearly lost a step. I think you can say the same thing about some guys in Calgary. I don't think Trey Roberson is as good as he was prior to going down to the NFL. I don't think Cam Judge, and I know some of these guys have been hurt and haven't played, so I, it's hard, it's also that mixes into it as well. But I think that they're relying on some veteran guys that maybe, like, I mean, they they brought in Julian Hauser, who I like, and let Sean Lemon go. And I think you, you I think they've tied their their defensive scheme to veteran players who maybe are not as good as their name would suggest that again, it's all these players are still good players. I just wonder if maybe going with a little more youth, I think Hamilton should, should be doing it too. But I think if Calgary maybe went with a little more youth and didn't rely on some of these more experienced veteran players, maybe you get that extra athleticism on the field. Maybe you get that some extra speed, some extra size, maybe that defense is a little bit better. I just, I just wonder if maybe they're looking at that team. I wonder if they looked at their team similar to how Hamilton looked at theirs. Like, Oh, we're just a couple of veteran pieces away from really going back into the upper echelon. It just hasn't worked out. Yeah. And then they've been reloading for the yeah. last decade and eventually you just run out. That, uh, well, that, that, that's a good point too. Like that's, that's it. Like we always say like, Oh, Calgary never signs anyone in free agency and they just build from within, but that well runs dry eventually. Like, for as good as yeah. they've been, you have one year where your where your you where your U.S. talent is the new U.S. talent isn't there, 
or you have a draft that isn't great, you can start tearing into your core if you if you're not replacing the pieces that go. And even if you have softened your stance on Jake Mayer, I don't think you'd say he's an elite level quarterback. Like, no, I'm not going to sit elite... here and say, hey, hey, I'll take him over anybody. But at the exactly. same time, I don't think I don't think I'm ready for Calgary to to make a change either. Like I might have no. been earlier. No, I don't think like he's not Taylor Cornelius. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like it's not it's not as if he's not worth being. Like, I think he's good enough to be a starting quarterback, but he's not. Again, because it's the Stampeders, and like I said earlier, we go back to that lineage of Flutie and Burris and, and Dickinson. The expectations we've had of the team over the past decade, too. That's it, too. But it's like they've had that guy. When Flutie was in Calgary, he was the best quarterback in the league. When Garcia was in Calgary, he was in the running as the best quarterback in the league. Burris, but like they had elite quarterback play, which allows you to not necessarily have elite talent around him. The quarterback, we're seeing it in Toronto. Chad Kelly is an elite quarterback. His receiving core is good, but there's not one guy in that receiving core that I would say he is a top five guy. Sure, people argue Tavares Daniels has been has had an excellent season, but I wouldn't say if I'm sitting here ranking the top five receivers, I'm not putting Tavares Daniels in that group. Kelly makes the guys around him better. So you can maybe cheap out a little bit. And they haven't done that. They because of Kelly's contract prior to the extension, they were able to actually bring in talent, but because they don't have to have a Marquis Ambles making 175,000 because Kelly's so good that he makes the guys around him better. You can get a DeMonte Coxie, who's an unknown guy who can go out and, and have great games because Kelly makes those guys better. Mayor doesn't necessarily make the guys better. And they go through with Calgary, they go through that idea of, well, we can just bring in anybody. And because of our system and because of what we have, we're going to be okay. But now that you don't have that top tier quarterback, you need to then spend elsewhere to to get him the talent to make him better. If, if, if that makes any sense. It does. It does. Because if he's, if your quarterback isn't making the rest of your team better just by being your quarterback, then you have to have another level of talent there. Well, look at what we, you know what, not to take it back to the Ticats, but we'll look at how they're dealing with, with, with uh, Taylor Palina. Like they paid Bo the money. So that caused them to have to not bring Steven Dunbar back or not go after a Geno Lewis. And you see, they got good receivers. Tim White's a good receiver. Duke Williams is a good receiver. Terry Goblin's a good receiver. I don't necessarily think they have an elite receiver. There's, and when nobody, you have a there, there's nobody there that Powell can look at. 12 times a game, complete yep. eight and put up 150 yards. Exactly. Whereas if you look at some of the, if, if you have a quarterback who's elite, you don't worry about it. If you have a quarterback, that's not, you need a Geno Lewis. They don't have that. And I don't, I Reggie Bagleton. I still think is a really good receiver. We mentioned Malik Henry, Mark and Michelle, all those guys. They're all really good receivers, but they don't have that one guy where you're like, he's not, my go-to guy. Yeah. And he's they don't the guy have a Kenny Lawler on that team. No. And believe me, I got a brand new appreciation of Kenny Lawler because Winnipeg has a fantastic receiving core. He got plugged in, and it's like, oh my god, they're they're on another level now. How? Yep, that's how. But because, wow. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but you get a guy like that opens up things for Dalton Schoen. Open like it's look at BC. BC had Nathan Rourke, and Nathan Rourke made everyone around him better. But they surrounded him with Lucky Whitehead and Dominique Grimes, and now we see with Vernon, he's got Keon Hatch. Like. The good teams have the quarterbacks that can make the guys better. 
But if you don't have that, you need the guys around you to step up. And in Calgary, I think his player, I think Mayer's teammates have let him down more than Mayer's been the cause of their problems. Right. And then that causes, then sometimes that will cause him, cause the quarterback to press and start yep. making rash decisions, trying to make something happen when it's not there. He has to put the game on his shoulders and. I won't say he, he's not capable of that, but that's not how he is best to be utilized. He is. He I think that's, be, that's a very diplomatic he, way of saying it. Yes. <laughs> yeah. He should be a, he should be a distributor. He should be a point guard out there. He shouldn't be the one that you put the game plan on and say, you got to go out there and throw for 400 yards and four touchdowns and air it all over the field. He needs to be the guy that gets it in. Like, and it, it he, he just, uh, you know what? To just, dumb it down. He needs guys around him to make plays. He's not having that happen. That's why they're struggling. Easiest way to say it. Yeah. All right. Well, let's move on to next week here. Uh, the rematch weekend for a couple of these matchups, although not one of the usual rematches. Um, like you alluded to earlier, Hamilton going in on what? Three days rest into Ottawa? Yep. One day of practice, which was today. They have a walkthrough tomorrow and then they travel to Ottawa. It's uh mind-bogglingly idiotic scheduling snafu by the league. Well, I mean, if we're talking about player safety and fan safety, we also have another controversy going on because Edmonton and Calgary's game was preceded as scheduled when it was above when the air quality index was above what the league had said was their limit on having to delay a game. Yep. They don't care. Like, I mean, should we should we be surprised though that a sports league puts profits and money over the health and safety of their players and and their consumers? Like, I no, I I don't want to I don't want to rip into the league for this, but I think that that air quality thing was a nice thing to put out there, and we have seen the the entirety of this year, with the exception of a couple training camp practices canceled in, in Edmonton and Calgary. And I think maybe one in Ottawa, it has meant absolutely nothing to like, they're not going to cancel games. What, what, what was it? The COVID season, we had one rescheduled game and they did that through gritted teeth. They're not going to cancel these games. And it's just player safety. It's it, fan safety. It's lip service. Quite frankly, it's, we can do this, but we're going to go ahead as planned anyway. It doesn't matter. They just don't care. That's about the long and short of it, and I wish I could say differently. Yeah, I wish we could. I wish we all could. But honestly, I look at this game. If Ottawa can't beat a beaten up Ticats team, then I think it's time to write their season off. Like this is a game tailor made for the Red Blacks to get a big win, get themselves back into the playoff mix. If Hamilton goes in there on three days rest with one day of an actual practice with a banged up roster that's missing their top two quarterbacks, that's missing probably Duke Williams that's missing a handful of defense. Like it, if Ottawa can't win this one, I don't, I think their season's over. I think that whole Dustin Crumb stuff that we were all loving back in July. I think that the pixie dust is worn off and they're, they're, they're back to just being bad, Ottawa. terrible Ottawa. Yeah. Yeah. They're just back to being Ottawa. This is a, this is a game the red blacks have to win. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm totally on board. They're, this one was gifted to them by the CFL scheduling gods. And if they reject that gift, there's no sense of picking them for another game the whole season. No, they're like, we might as well just stop talking about them entirely because they're completely irrelevant to the playoff conversation if they can't win on Friday. 
All right. And so a, a better matchup with better turnaround times for both teams. Montreal going into Toronto on Saturday as the first game of a triple header. I don't see how you can how you can not pick Toronto, but Montreal's got another chance to prove that they belong. Yeah, I like I said earlier, the Argos will slip up maybe in one of these games, but I think it's more likely to be the one in Montreal. This one's at BMO, if I'm not mistaken. So at BMO, yep. Yeah, so I think this is again. It, Argos are coming off a short-ish week, but the Owls at least played uh, last week, so they are, they have a little bit more rest, but not a ton. But the Argos roster is just so freaking good. I don't think anyone of note really got. I saw Sean Oakman left the game a couple times. I'm not sure what his status is, but. I don't necessarily think that that's going to make much of a difference. I think the Argos win this one. They wrap up the season series against the Alouettes. Uh, and they can start think... printing Eastern final tickets at that point. Yeah. If they, if they get to 10 and one and, and the next closest team is four games back, essentially five games back, it, it's a wrap there. I, I believe they clinch a playoff spot with a victory. So, I mean, what more can you, can you really ask for, for an opportunity at home coming off a big win against your biggest rival knocking off the the team that's the closest to you in the standings. I mean, it's football, so anything can happen, but I I don't see a way in which the Argos lose this one. No, those first two games seem pretty easy to pick, which is why one of them is going to go the opposite way. Of course, uh, of course. Right, so we have the Banjo Bowl, a rematch of one heck of a game from last week, Saskatchewan coming into Winnipeg. We spent about far too long for me praising the riders and praising Jake Delagala earlier in the show about his poise. That's going to be put to the test this week in Winnipeg. I don't think this is going to be a game. I think the bombers are going to obliterate them. I think all the nonsense with the Pete Roberts and stuff, that crowd, I believe it's sold out. That's going to be the most hostile environment. Jake Delagala has, he, well, he hasn't, he hasn't started. He hasn't won a road game. Like, I actually, I'm not, not even sure if he started a road game. Like, was he started? Has he did he start the week before BC, or he was that the one where he came in? And I think relief? that's the one he came in in relief on. Okay, so he came in in relief, but I think that I think those are all at home. Yeah, the one I think against the starts are the starts he's had have all been at home, as far as so I this is a th- this, this is, is the his first, first road game. So, and I mean, let's throw him right into the deep end, right? That's just it. This, this is, you know, the Roman Coliseum. He's going to go against the Lions here. Like, not, metaphorically speaking, not obviously he's going against Bombers, but this is this is the feeding of Christians to the Lions in this one. I don't think – I think that win on Labor Day was not a season saver, but it's the one where they can go, okay, we got this one, so we know that we can compete with these teams, winning against BCs, like we can compete with these teams – but it would not surprise me if the Bombers won this by 30. You know what I mean? Like, I don't see this being a game. I think they're going to be angry that they lost. And I think they're going to. We saw it earlier this season. BC went into Winnipeg, slapped them around. They get the rematch. They dropped 50 on them. Wouldn't shock me if we saw that again. In 14 points in like, th- in like three plays. Yeah, I don't think this is going to be remotely close. I think the Bombers will have a game plan that will just rip the guts out of the Riders. And I think this is... This is the biggest blowout of the weekend by far. I I'm just gonna sit here and say I hope you're right. <laughs> yeah, it's okay. I you, you I can be objective in this in this matchup. I just 
I'd like to. I'd like to be screaming my fool head off in 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 that stadium on Saturday. And you will be. Trust me. You will be. Well, I will be screaming. Hopefully, it's in happiness and not terror. It, It will be. You'll be enjoying yourself. Fret not. All right. Well, and then we do have one more rematch: Calgary going into Edmonton. It feels to me like this is a must win for Calgary just to keep them in the playoff conversation um, that, and if it goes the way it, the, if the week goes the way that I think it's going to go, they'd put themselves into the third spot in the East at that point and start building some momentum for the end of the season. But Edmonton hasn't been an easy out the last few weeks. No, I mean, ever since they inserted Trey Ford into the lineup, they've been tough to play against because he adds that running dimension. He adds that playmaking dimension that they didn't have at the quarterback position before. I think this is also a big game for Calgary because they could essentially crush the Elks' dreams of making that miraculous comeback from 0-9. Like, this would put them at 2-11. and Their season would for all intents and purposes, be over. You're right, Calgary get themselves into that playoff spot, bar, depending on the outcome of Hamilton and Ottawa. But like you, if the, this week goes the way I think it's going to go, the Stamps would then claim that third spot in the East for the time being. But it would not surprise me if Edmonton could pull this one out. Although sometimes I look at teams that lose a close rivalry game and then the next week play them again and just get their teeth kicked in. So it also wouldn't surprise me if the stand, this is to me the hardest one of the weekend to call. I think it's pretty obvious the red black should win. I think the Argo should win. I told you, I think the bombers are going to cruise. This one is, is a toss up. This is a coin flip for me, but I think given the, I think Calgary still has more talent. I still think, I think Jake Mayer is the better overall quarterback. We haven't seen a ton from Trey Ford in the passing game. I know he had a 300-yard game. Uh, I think it was was yeah, it was this week. He had a 300-yard game against the against the. Uh, oh no, he had a big rushing game against the St. Peters. But I think he had a 300-yard passing game in the game against Ottawa. Uh, so we've seen him be able to throw. I, I I don't know. I think I think that they they gave it their all. Should have won in Calgary on Labor Day, and I think there's going to be a big letdown this week. So I I. I guess I'll side with the stamps in this one, but I'm not overly confident in that prediction. No, this one's going to be an interesting game. It's going to, it's going to be, yeah. this could go a lot of different ways. I just think Calgary's more, the more the veteran team right now. And in a situation like this, I think that matters. It well, it mattered on Monday. It, it, that was very evident in how that game ended on Monday, where the Stampeders were down big going into the fourth quarter and then ripped off. Well, it was four straight scoring drive, something like that, to win that game. I think you could see something similar here. Maybe the crowd, because the crowds are Edmonton's now. They've they've broken the the winless streak on the season. They've halted the winless streak at home. I just think now they're going to go back to being, because let's be honest, they were an zero nine ball club, and then everyone got high on them because they beat Hamilton and Ottawa. Everyone's beaten Hamilton and Ottawa this year. Like I think. I think we just wanted because of the Trey Ford stuff, because I think most people wanted to see them end that home losing streak. I think we, people got a little too high on the Elks. I think we're going to see that they're with that loss to Calgary, potentially another loss this week. They're going to go back to being the team. They are, they're going to finish this year, like five and 13 and, and it's just going to be another bad season at Edmonton. I, I just don't think that they, 
they have they have good players. Don't get me wrong, but I, I I'm with you, man. I think the veteran know how of the Stampeders will shine through on this one. Even five and thirteen though would represent considering oh. they were zero and nine. That would represent hope going into next year. Oh, oh, for sure. If they if they went five and four down the stretch in the last half of the season, I think that people would they they'd be a trendy pick. They were a trendy pick this offseason, but I think they'd be an even trendier pick next offseason to to be a team that that goes from worse to a playoff caliber team. Um but Trey Ford's got to be the guy, like barring injury, he's got to be the starting quarterback there next year. Right? Like he's got to be going into the start of the season, like going into training camp, unless they go out and get Zach Caleros, you know what I mean? It's got to be Trey Ford's team, right? Like, like there's no more of this nonsense with these terrible quarterbacks. He's he's done enough to be given the reins at least to start the season, no? Yeah, he's done enough to at least keep his job through the rest of the yeah. season. Let's see what he's got. I mean, if they end up two and sixteen and he's been terrible for the last different story. Month, different story, but I don't think that happens. No, and even if I think even if they the thing is, even in their losses, they've been competitive. Like that was a very like if if they maybe they go three and fifteen or four and fourteen, but if you look at them and go, they weren't getting shut out every week. Like they've been shut out twice this season. Trey Ford's been able to put points on the board. I just think he's done enough barring injury to be the guy going into at least the start of the season, unless Edmonton goes out and makes a big trade to bring some known name veteran in. Right. And who's going to want to do that at that point? Well, for a coaching staff, that's probably on their last legs. Like it's, it, it, it would be tough. It would be tough to do. Yeah, there's not enough there's not enough quarterbacks to go around in this league right now. I can't imagine anybody moving. No, and so, like, anybody the, moving a player of a caliber enough to put Trey Ford on the bench at this point. That's just it. Like the only name that really pops up when you think about it is Dane Evans. And why would the Lions ever entertain getting rid of Dane? Took a massive pay cut to go there. He is the best insurance policy in the league right now. We saw how well he worked as a number two in and are a one B with, with Jeremiah Mazzoli as a one a, and when he had that sounding board, like he's maybe he's not good enough to ever be the guy, but as your number two option for a guy who maybe he's got to come and do to injury, you would, there's not very many other guys you'd rather have. So unless a team, like unless Hamilton decides they're going to get rid of Bo after one year or Jeremiah Mazzoli is out in Ottawa, but how much can you rely on either of those guys to stay healthy? I can't see there being a quarterback. Like you said, that, is good enough that would be available for Edmonton to go away from Trey Ford next season. Yeah. So I, I guess the best case scenario for Edmonton is they have a nice second half of the season. Trey Ford's the guy they built around him. They start working on, okay, what does this team look like with him there? And we go from there. Yeah. I guess, I guess the one, and this is a far out idea would be if Nathan Rourke decides to come back. Because Nathan Rourke comes back, that's a lot of dominoes that could then fall. I don't see that happening, but I guess I right. just that, came to that, mind. That, that, that's one that's, oh, A, very unlikely, but B, would be a wild card for everybody. Yeah, like, that's, who doesn't he, chase him at that point? Well, and I think he's a legit straight-up free agent. Like, I, I think... I don't think he's because he was I think drafted after in 20, this season, yes, he would be a free yeah, agent he was, if he came back. He was drafted in 2020. 
He was in BC in 21 and 22. I think if he does, and he's not going to come back, he's going to stick in the NFL, whether on a practice roster or not for this season. And at least probably the next two or three, he'll at least have opportunities. Yeah. And BC would obviously make a run to bring him back and he'd probably be open to going there. And if he does, well now Vernon Adams is available or Dane Evans is or both that changes things. So that's the only thing that I could see if that was to happen where Rourke's given the indication that he has no shot at making an actual NFL roster as a number two quarterback to maybe one day get a couple chances to start. That's the only thing I could see where some dominoes would fall where Trey Ford would be out of a starting position. But even if that was to happen, maybe he goes somewhere else. Maybe he, if Edmonton gets another guy, they trade forward to a team like Hamilton or a team like Ottawa who could potentially be in the market for a starting quarterback. Like I just, I think if the only teams right now we know for certain going into next year that won't have a quarterback question is Toronto and Winnipeg. Cause I think the right with, with you got Trevor Harris, you got Bo Levi Mitchell, you got Vernon Adams, you got like those guys, you, maybe teams do move on from, but Nathan Rourke comes back. That changes the math, I think. But other than that, I think Ford's done enough to warrant being the starting quarterback next season. Yep. And I, and so far I don't see any reason why he wouldn't be. Um, all right. Well, let's go ahead and wrap this week up for the Rouge, White and Blue. Uh, we'll catch you next week. Thanks for listening. Find more great shows like this at CF pod network on Twitter. Twitter.